Soft as it began by Rubber Soul 02. Chapter 8 Hermione Lee shrieks with joy when the owl delivers the letter the next day, ripping it open like a child on Christmas morning and holding her breath in her lungs until it starts to burn. Dear Miss Granger, I must admit that I was pleasantly surprised to hear from you. It has been so long since our last, slightly tumultuous meeting. I will forever be sorry for what I did that day, though I cannot say that I regret doing what I thought I needed to in order to protect my daughter. I only thank you for your understanding and forgiveness, as you have been so kind to give me already. You have asked me questions in your letter, though I think you'll find the quantity unnecessarily, as they all produce the same answer. First, you asked if I know the true identity of Beetle the Bard. Next, you asked how Beetle the Bard came to know the story of the three brothers. Finally, you asked whether or not the Bard has any living relatives. To answer all of these in a slightly convoluted way is yes. You see, Miss Granger, all of this is connected in an intrinsically spun web. I'll start at the beginning. Beetle the Bard was born in England, but his father was originally from Denmark. He visited there while writing the first draft of the tales of the Beetle the Bard, and it was there that he met a woman, a woman who he would eventually marry and start a family with. I know of this because of a written account in an old journal which was owned by the ancestor of a family friend. His name was Amadeus Baron, and he lived in Denmark in his younger years as an assistant wandmaker. He recounts in his journal the story of meeting a woman called Beatrice Pevery at a tavern, where she served him his lunch that day. The two became fast friends, and when she sat down with him one day, just before closing, he came to know a bit about her husband, whom she claimed was a famous children's author, currently away in Britain on a writing trip. Amadeus was never told outright that this man was the bard, but he believed in his very soul that it was. You see, Miss Granger, it was Beatrice who gave Amadeus the necklace I wear around my neck to this day the necklace with the deathly hallows pendant. Amadeus wore the necklace as a token of his friendship with Beatrice, whom he stayed friends with until he had to leave Denmark a few years later. It wasn't until he read the tales of Beetle the Bard to his own children years later that he came to realise the connection, and understood that Beatrice's husband was almost certainly the Bard himself. This is how I myself came to know of the hallows, and it is the reason I believed in them. It was the Baron's family who gifted me the necklace and the journal, knowing my strong belief. How Beatrice, or the Bard, came to know the story of the Hallows, or to owning that necklace, I am not sure, nor do I know the true meaning of the Bard himself. Though I have never found myself wondering. Some things, Miss Granger, are best left alone. But I am sure with her name, Beatrice Pevery, you may be able to find out the information you need for yourself. Luna always said you were a clever girl. I hope that this helps. I have enclosed copies of Amadeus's journals for your own perusal, should you remain curious. Good luck with whatever it is you are looking to understand, Miss Granger. I believe that the things we search for have a way of unburying themselves, one way or another. Yours, Xenophilius Lovegood. Malfoy! She calls his name after she reads the letter for a second time. She wishes she could describe the feeling she gets whenever she uncovers something like this, the same feeling she'd gotten discovering the Philosopher's Stone in first year, or understanding the Chamber of Secrets in second year, like sparks flying through her body and injecting a shot of adrenaline into her veins. 
The feeling was unmatched, even more so now that this discovery is one step closer to leading her to Harry. She listens from the study for Malfoy's footsteps, eager to share this discovery with him, but hears nothing. Fingers twitching with excitement, knee bobbing up and down in her chair, she shoots up, bringing the letter with her down the corridor. Malfoy? she calls loudly, urgently, her voice laced with a palpable immediacy. She steps into the kitchen, peeks her head around the corner into the sitting room. Malfoy? She isn't aware of how desperate she sounds, how his name falls from her lips in a crucial breath. As if it's pernient that she knows, right away, what she's found. And it is. She's itching to get work done as soon as possible, use this new information to connect the dots that have been floating idly for so many days, waiting to be strung together. Her footsteps pace loudly back towards the corridor, and she opens her mouth to call for him again. The door of the bathroom swings forcibly open, revealing Malfoy fresh out of the shower, the lower half of his body wrapped in a white towel. He looks panicked for a moment, until he sees her, eyes flickering over her body, slowly coming to the understanding that she is alive and in one piece. She's almost tempted to ponder over the fact that Malfoy had been unquestionably worried about her when his features suddenly darken. Fuck, Granger. This better be good. Her eyes are wide with surprise, trailing over his bare chest down to the soft smattering of dark hair under his navel. She swallows, tugging her eyes away and back up to his face. A drop of water rolls from his wet hair down his neck and over his clavicle, but she's more focused on the angry frown on his lips, the red of his cheeks from the hot water, the spot of shaving foam still on the corner of his mouth. I... Sorry, I didn't... Uh, this came. She holds the letter up, waving it slightly, her cheeks warming with embarrassment. Malfoy's gaze falls onto the piece of folded paper, his expression softening. Shit, is that... She nods frantically, a stepping forward to hold the letter out to him. The bathroom is full of steam, the mirror foggy with it, and the scent of his shampoo wafts out of the corridor. Malfoy takes the paper from her with a slightly damp hand, and she winces but doesn't say anything. She pushes his wet fringe off his forehead as he reads, his eyes skimming the letter at an electric pace. Hermione harnesses total control, keeping her eyes away from the towel that slung low around his hips. Her neck hopped with her discomfort. This was definitely uncharted territory for them, and she certainly hadn't meant to invade his privacy but she also can't help but be curious. The compulsion to look, to take her time and admire, is almost as strong as her will not to. This is good, Granger, he breathes, eyes still on the letter. This is great. Beatrice Peverie, Denmark, we've practically already got her answer. Potter's next appearance with his alias. Malfoy looks hopefully, searching her eyes with a question he already knows the answer to. Yes, Hermione breathes. It was in Denmark. Malfoy's eyes flash with something she might call excitement, handing her back the letter. Their fingers accidentally brush as she grabs it, and she instinctively stiffens, pulling away and clearing her throat softly. Well, we can't know for sure yet, but it looks promising. She watches another bead of water roll down the long column of his throat, and for a strange, a horrifying moment, 
She's tempted to step forward and swipe it off with her thumb. Give me a minute to dress, Granger, and I'll meet you in the study. She nods, turning away almost immediately and walking faster than she normally would down the hall, making her eager escape. In the study, she pulls out a few genealogy books, including her favourite, Nature's Nobility, a Wizarding Genealogy, which she'd used during the war a few times in her research. She sets to work immediately, flipping through the pages with buzzing fingers, as she is hit with a powerful wave of déjà vu. Malfoy sweeps into the room only minutes later, grabbing a second tome, older and contained to genealogy for wizarding families in Central Europe. Hermione keeps her focus on her own book before remembering the journal entry that Mr Lovegood had sent with his letter. She spreads it out on her desk, the surface overcrowded with books and parchment and notes, with a map of Denmark she'd opened after reading the letter. The date of the journal entry sits on the top left corner of the page, the ink faded and the writing slightly ancient-looking. August 24th, 1493. Amadeus Barron met Beatrice Pebbery at the trail end of the 15th century, she says without looking behind her at Malfoy. She's too busy flipping the pages in her book, watching the dates as the number grows higher and higher. So we're looking for clues through upwards of 15 generations. How are we supposed to narrow it all down? She pauses, craning her neck around to look at Malfoy's book, wondering if he's gotten any closer than she has. It's hard for her to see the page he's on, what with his giant head in the way, and so Hermione makes a split-second decision. Malfoy, get up! She pushes back her own chair, standing and pulling out her wand. Malfoy twists around to face her, his features contorted quite humorously into a look of utter bewilderment. I beg your pardon? Oh, for Merlin's sake, just stand up, you git! She surprises herself when she grabs the back of his chair, pulling him away from his own desk and shoving him towards the window. Malfoy makes a disgruntled noise, his face scrunching in confusion and annoyance, which she very pointedly ignores. When Hermione Granger is on a mission, she'll move whatever mountains are necessary, even Draco Malfoy. I... Granger, what the fuck? She continues to ignore him, pushing her own chair away from her desk before pointing her wand at the heavy wood, muttering a spell as Malfoy grumbles more of his displeasure behind her. What are you? Hush, Malfoy, just for a moment, please! She can feel the heat of his glare on the back of her head, but she focuses her entire energy on the spell, her desk rising into the air, wobbling slightly whenever her hand does. She takes a breath to steady herself, her magic buzzing at the tips of her fingers as she moves the desk away from the wall and into the middle of the study. Malfoy, to her surprise, stays quiet, not protesting when she does the same with his desk, levitating it from its place against the opposite wall and placing it gingerly against her own, pressing them together with a resounding clunk to create one large desk in the middle of the room. As flattered as I am that you want to be closer to me, Granger, I... For the last time, Malfoy, shut up and get over here. She barks at him, not bothering to bring her chair back over to the new megadesk she has created. She paces around the edge of the desk surface, frantically pushing books away from one another, spreading out her research and all of the paper so it's easier to read, to find and digest. A cluttered space was a cluttered mind, and her mother used to tell her, she hears Malfoy's sigh and the creak of his chair as he finally stands, and the sounds of his footsteps as he comes over to join her, 
resigned to their newly collaborative work surface. She slides the journal entry across the desk to her, a pointer finger on the date. 1943. Beatrice Pivry. Do you think Pevery is the bard's last name, or do you think she kept her maiden name? Draco tugs a large, open tome towards him, flipping through a few yellowed pages as his eyes skim the list of names. I can't be sure, she replies, pulling the letter back towards her. It sounds closer to a Danish name than to an English one, but if the bard's father really was from Denmark, there's a real possibility it could be either. Draco nods, running a finger down the list of P-names on the page he settled on. For a few moments, the study is silent but for the flipping of pages, and the sound of the wind rushing through the trees outside, and the soft, rhythmic sound of their breathing. Hermione's mind is on fire, burning with desperation, rushing with the familiar need to seek and find. Each name that passes that doesn't match only spurs her to keep going, to continue onto the next page and find her answer. Beatrice Helen Pevery. For the first time in her life, Malfoy's voice sounds like honey, sweetened by the discovery of an answer. Hermione's entire body still except for her eyes, which jump eagerly to Draco, who picks up the heavy tome into his hands as he reads. Born 1468, died 1505 of the plague, Three children. Widowed. Her heart stops. Widowed? Draco meets her stare, his eyes severe, questioning. No mention of her husband's name. It looks as if the bard succeeded in remaining anonymous. Hermione moves quickly around the table's surface until she reaches Draco, stepping into his side as he places the large text down on the table, tapping the name Beatrice Pevery twice with his middle finger. Three children, she says, finding the silver of hope in the disappointment of the bard's ever-hidden identity. That's good. It's something. Draco nods beside her, smelling fresh from his shower, his skin warm as it always seems to be. Taking out his wand, Draco points at the book, mumbling a doubling charm to duplicate it and flipping it open to the same page for Hermione. She watches him as he does, suddenly struck by how easy it seemed to work with him how effortlessly they knew what to do next without even having to communicate, how he seems to understand exactly what she might do next and do it before she can even get the chance. The difference between being a team with Malfoy and being a team with Harry and Ron was staggering. She understands now what it's like to be equally matched and, though she had once thought that she might hate it, had dreaded the thought of having to compete with someone of having to challenge their wits and outsmart them. She's astonished instead at how much she likes it. How easy it seems to breathe. Quill and parchment by her side, Hermione works alongside Malfoy, following the familial line of Beatrice Pevery's descendants, watching last names change as the women get married off, entire lines disappearing, accounts of families moving across Europe and out of Denmark. Draco had been right. There had to be about twenty or so generations descending from the Pevery line, each with offspring that branched out into new families. But by the end, after what felt like hours of searching, of creating family trees and watching the Pevery lineage grow smaller and smaller, only one name is left. Freya Pevery. Found in the very last book they look in, A Modern Wizarding Genealogy, 
Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries by Hawkley Havstock. Twenty generations and only one Pevery remains! Beside her, Draco props himself on the edge of the desk, his palms behind him as he stares down at the name written on the scribbled piece of parchment. They'd followed this line of Peveries down to the last living relative of each branch, had seen lines die off, family names change from Pevery to Peters to Williams. One family, descended from Beatrice Pevery's eldest son, had moved to America in the early 1900s, and their entire family line had ended during the First World War. But one Pevery remained, in Denmark, the last of the family to keep the name, the last living relative, and they had found her. Hermione and Draco portkeyed immediately to Libuania, striding into the first library they came across. They walked in side by side, united team. Hermione doesn't give herself time to stop and think about what a strange pairing they made, what they must look like with their reddened, sleep-deprived eyes and expressions of utter determination. When she leads them over to a computer, Draco makes no comment as he watches her wiggle the mouse, using the library software to plug in a search for Freya Pevery in Denmark. She clicks on the first result that pops up. This must be her, Hermione breathes, flooded with another acerbic twist of her stomach, her nerves firing through her entire body as an anxious lump rises in her throat. They'd done it. Freya Pevery, a senior professor of ancient history at the University of Copenhagen. Draco, in an attempt to get a closer look at the computer screen, moves behind her, leaning one palm next to the rickety keyboard. His chest hovers over her back, and she can feel his warm breath on her hair, his other hand holding on to the back of her chair. His knuckle accidentally brushes against her spine when he dips his head closer to study the search page. She comes from a long line of powerful wizards, but she teaches at a Muggle Institute. Don't you think that's strange? Hermione huffs, turning her face to glare at him, all the while forgetting just how close he is. Her eyes meet his profile, close enough that she could lean forward just a bit and her nose would be touching his jaw. She pulls away, and Malvoy casually retracts as well, leaving her slightly dizzy. No, Malvoy, I don't think it's strange at all. I'd imagine the position would be rather prestigious, actually. Her defensive tone causes him to glance at her, and even though they've moved, his face is still close too close. She can see the flecks of blue in his grey eyes, notices that his bottom lip is slightly fuller than his top, watches them pull into an all-too-familiar frown. Relax, Swat, I didn't mean it that way. She rolls her eyes, turning back to the screen and dismissing the warmth running through her body as she does. What's the address again? Of the inn Harry stayed at in Denmark? Draco pulls away from her, his hand leaving the back of her chair to slide a piece of folded paper from the back pocket of his trousers. They'd brought the list of aliases Hermione had made that day at the Ministry Archives with them. Hermione punches the University of Copenhagen into the search bar, clicking on the map that pops up first. Draco automatically pushes her a pencil and a scrap of paper so she can write it down, and when she's done, he reads her the address of the inn the plastic keys clinking methodically as she presses each letter down before hitting enter. Her breath is punched out of her lungs when she looks at the address that comes up, because the location of Harry's appearance under his alias was at an inn not fifteen minutes from the University of Copenhagen. 
Draco exhales his own ragged breath beside her, the realisation hitting him just as it does Hermione. Looks like we'll be needing a portkey to Denmark as soon as possible, he says, his voice low and almost giddy. Hermione's heart pounds wildly, a steady thump, thump, thump that she swears the entire library can hear. As she stares at the computer before them, Harry's next location laid out right in front of their eyes. He was different to her now, somehow. She's been looking at him differently. Not necessarily in a good or a bad way, it's hard to tell with him. She just knows that she sees him differently, notices things she hadn't before. This is part of the reason she hasn't been able to fall asleep tonight. It's not for lack of trying. She'd rolled around under her sheets for hours, tossing and turning, her mind cycling with thoughts of travelling to Denmark tomorrow, of what they'll find, of why Harry seemed to be looking more closely at Beat of the Bard, maybe even the Hallows. But also, lingering behind it all, the thoughts of Malfoy, of how he had continued to surprise her these past few weeks. They spent a few days waiting for a portkey to Denmark, and so she'd had plenty of time to observe him, to ponder, to test what sorts of things got under his skin the most. He's different than she thought he'd be, still awful at times, but also intelligent, headstrong, determined, funny, introspective, she thinks, judging from how pensive he can become. He's hard to read, but she knows it's because he keeps himself closed off. He's always in control of himself, of his body, his expressions, his words and the way he says them, a skill Hermione was still learning to master. Self-assured, but not egotistical, as she had once thought him to be. A strong-willed, always brutally honest with her, which she is sort of thankful for. But there's something missing still, too. A bit of him that she's caught maybe once or twice since she's gotten here. The part of himself that he doesn't share with the world. There is something about Draco Malfoy that is unreachable, tantalisingly elusive. And she definitely can't ignore the way her body and mind seem to react to him. The way she has suddenly started to notice his touch. The visceral reactions he drew from her when she caught sight of his skin, or from the lingering stare of his gaze. Though she's sure that this misled physical attraction is a result of her own unfulfilled needs, hormones and the fact that she is trapped with him for the time being in such close proximity. There's also the unignorable fact that somehow, in the years between Hogwarts and now, he has become quite fit. Or maybe he has always been and she just hated him too much to notice. She can't pretend that they aren't a great team, that when they work together they succeed just as much as they argue. She definitely can't pretend that she isn't grateful that Madge had insisted he come. That even though he liked to constantly remind her that she was a giant thorn in his side, he was helping her. He was almost as enthusiastic about finding Harry as she was. Eventually, knowing that sleep would not be coming any time soon, she had thrown her covers off and made her way downstairs, stepping outside into the muggy night air to lean against the porch railing. It smells like incoming summer, like balmy, humid nights and rain and nature. The moon is half full and hidden by trees, but the clearing is mostly dark, or shadows and shapes, the night hiding their substance. She likes just listening, likes how the darkness heightens her other senses, 
opens her ears to the sounds of the insects in the forest and of the rustle of leaves from the tall tree beside the house. Likes how she can feel the delicious warmth of spring nights so vividly on her skin, the nostalgic feeling it brings with it. Feels like she's the only one in the world, just for a moment. Then the floor creaks. You scared me, she exhales on a shaky breath after she has turned to find him there at the screen door. The details of his face are hard to make out behind the mesh, but she can see where his eyes find hers, the outline of his body against the corridor light inside. Again. Likewise, Granger. With all the racket, I thought we were being visited by a large bear or something. My mistake. She doesn't bother glaring at him like she usually would. His words have no bite to them. No harmless, she knows. Teasing. I hardly made any noise, you prat. The screen door creaks open as he pushes it, his soft footfall down the single step, the quiet groan of the wooden floor as he crosses a small porch towards her. She turns away from him again, looking back towards the clearing as he steps beside her, standing closer than she expected he would. He has a shirt on this time, thank Merlin, but wears the same sleep trousers she'd seen the other night. What's your excuse for being up at this ungodly hour, Granger? You. An owl hoots into the distance. Money presses herself closer to the railing. Nerves. Excitement. Because my body is trying to torture me, mock me, knowing that I essentially need to sleep for our big day tomorrow. And you? Pondering life's unanswered questions? Something like that. Money nods, looking over at him. He's leaning one side of his body against the railing, facing her, but his head is turned to look sideways out at the clearing, his hands in the pockets of his linen trousers, open to her, not closed off. There are a few moments of silence, but they're not uncomfortable. They pass easily without the pressure of conversation. She's almost sad to ruin it, but the thought pops into her head and comes out before she can stop it. Have you ever seen a firefly before? She's aching for conversation, has started to feel the strain of being isolated for so long. She misses her friends, misses Dean at work and Ginny and Ron, and God, she misses Harry. She'd always used to ask Harry silly questions like this, was always thankful for the way he seemed content just to listen to her talk after he'd given his own short, simple answer. What kind of question is that, Granger? More of a statement than an actual inquiry. The conversational kind, Malfoy, and the kind you answer. She watches his lips twitch upwards. He sneaks a hand under the bottom of his shirt, elbow bending as he scratches the opposite side of his stomach. A flash of his skin, gone the moment he pulls his hand away. Yes, I have seen a firefly before. Where? He turns his head towards her, his expression unreadable. His eyes flick over hers, his blink slow lazy. We used to have a summer home in France, all the way out in the country, no one for miles around. There was a field behind the house and I watched them there one night. Who showed them to you? His eyes twitched almost imperceptibly. As she regrets asking him again, he turns away from her, facing the railing, closing himself off again. Mum. She woke me in the middle of the night and told me I couldn't tell father. It was our little secret. 
and when he feels the strange, pivotal feeling of knowing someone, of having made it to the place of sharing and telling stories. She's taken aback that he has answered so honestly, that he hadn't grumbled at her to mind her own business. She looks out at the clearing again, her eyes skimming the grass and moss by the tree line. She takes a breath before speaking. Before I understood that I was a witch, my dad used to take me out at night and help me collect a bunch of them. The fireflies, that is. And we'd put them in a jar, like a lantern with a dozen tiny floating lights glowing like fairies. Before I knew that magic was real, I remember that being the closest thing I'd ever seen to it. Draco is quiet, but she feels him looking at her, attuned now to the way her skin alerts her whenever his eyes linger her way. She scratches at the bug bite on her ankle with the toe of her sock, tucking a wind-blown curl behind her ear. If we can't find Potter, what will you do? The question comes out of nowhere and hits her like a ton of bricks, mostly because no one has ever asked her this before. Her tongue is dry and heavy, her stomach coiling tight at the very thing that she has tried not to let herself think about since she started this search. I'll keep looking, she tells him as she meets his stare, her eyes dropping to the curve of his chin and then up again. His hair flops over his eyes and he pushes away quickly, leaning both elbows on the railing as his shoulders stiff and unrelenting. Would you spend your whole life doing it, up until your final breath? She hadn't thought about it before, and she knows how crazy it would sound to admit it out loud. Even if I stop searching, I'd always be... searching. Does that make any sense? Not really, Granger, but what else is new? She gives him a half-hearted scowl, but doesn't think he sees it anyway. I'd never stop wondering. I'd never stop asking myself how things might be different if Harry was here, if he was able to watch Ron fall in love and have a family, and what he might be doing for work whether or not he'd be dating Ginny, or if he'd still be living at Grimmauld Place. I'd always be searching for answers about where he went, even without actively investigating. I can't see myself letting go, and I know that Harry would do the same for me. He's my best friend. His response is quick, like he's been thinking about it for a while now. I think we can reach a point where we lose ourselves, where we can't stop making sacrifices for others. By dedicating your life to finding him, it isn't really your life anymore. It's living it for someone else. I disagree. He raises a brow. Why am I not surprised? He studies her as she pushes her lips, organising her thoughts in preparation for her reply. I think that Harry is as much a part of myself as all of the other things. He's a part of me, and so, in a way... I'm searching for a piece of myself that I've lost. We grew up together. How could I be me without him? I could live a full life and still never stop searching. And if he died in the final battle, what then? You wouldn't be able to move on and live for yourself? Would you always be living for him, even knowing that he'd never come back? She turns to face him now, her gaze floating up to his intense one. He almost looks upset, unhappy with her response. There is a finality that comes with death, yes, and I wouldn't be looking for him, but I think that a part of me would still be living for him all the same, for what he stood for, 
for what he taught me. Draco's eyes scan her face, brows pushed together in a careful thought. I think you've been living for Potter for so long that you've forgotten what it means to live for yourself. Whenever you once stop to ask yourself what you want, Granger, everything you've done has been for Potter. You spent your childhood letting yourself exist to protect him. Your adulthood looking for him. Even your career is for him. When have you ever put yourself first? Not all of that was for Harry. I was doing what I felt was right. Not strictly out of love or duty. I made my own choices. I made sacrifices to fight for my beliefs. I'm a lot of things, but selfish isn't one of them, Malfoy. A low, breathy scoff escapes his lips, an exhale of frustration. No, Granger. It's not being selfish. It's taking care of yourself. It's understanding what you want in life for yourself, to make you happy. You've spent so much time fighting the other people's battles that I don't think you even know who you are without Potter. I don't need you telling me who I am and what I should stand for, Malfoy. My love for Harry does not erase who I am. It only makes me more me. Who are you then, Granger? She pauses, blinking her eyebrows, pulling together in confusion, exasperation. If you're not the brains of Potter's operation, who are you? I already know the clever, stubborn, bossy, selfish version of you, because I've watched her my whole life. But what's under all of that, hmm? He takes a step forward, closer to her, urging her with his eyes to understand. What are the things that make you tick? Your desires, your compulsions, your needs. Who are you without your war? His words wash over her like an ice bath. So you think I'm some kind of empty cut out of a girl? Is that it? I can't exist without Harry. That's what I'm trying to tell you, Granger. You're not. But I don't think you've given yourself a moment to find that out. She takes another challenging step closer to him, her body pulsing with frustration. What authority do you have on my life, Malfoy? What gives you the right to tell me who I am or what I should become? He lets out an exasperated breath, almost a snarl, dipping his head to bring their faces closer to make his point. Because it was me once. I am a Malfoy. I've always been defined by two things my blood status and my father. I spent my life trying to maintain that image because I wanted to do it for my family, and I had no clue who I really was without it all. I looked in the mirror and I saw nothing that was my own. I'm not saying that you shouldn't keep looking for Potter. I know how much he means to you. I get it. I'm just saying that you should give yourself a minute to find out who you are here without him. The Granger who sees a few fireflies in a jar and thinks that it must be magic. That Granger. He pushes away from the railing, turning to leave and making it to the door in two large, quiet strides. He's tugging it open when she speaks, stilling him where he stands. She's here. That Granger is here, somewhere under all of it, and I think you know that you're starting to find that out. His shirt bunches over his shoulders as he pulls the door open to rest of the way. A loud shriek of the rusty springs, the creaking of old wood, disappearing inside before she can take another breath.